Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So this is episode 13 for the class, and this will be the last episode of The Populist for Democracy, Dictators, and Development. There will be no podcast for week 10. Uh, but before getting into this week's podcast, which discusses theories of authoritarian regime emergence and persistence, I wanted to talk about a few things. Um, first, the grades for Unit 3 are posted on Canvas for both the discussions and the writing assignments. Um, the discussions were overwhelmingly very, very good. So much fun to read, to be able to see the depth at which you're thinking about the issues, um, and just the conversations you have back and forth are really great to see how much you're thinking about this stuff and how deeply you're thinking about it. So it's been just great. The one suggestion I do have, and because you got two discussions left, um, is the second post of your discussions where you're responding to somebody. Don't just respond to tell somebody that you agree with them. Okay, you're not really adding much to the conversation. All right, you might agree with one part and not another, and that's perfectly fine to point out. And this can actually lead to asking interesting questions because it's only a thing here or there that you disagree with or that you're not sure about somebody's take on something. Okay, and on I've noticed that many people are, are getting points taken off simply because this, their second response to another student is that they agree. Oh, I agree with you. Well, that's, let, let's try to avoid that because it, it feels like you're just posting to complete the assignment and it doesn't really add much to the conversation. Okay, so, so really try and um, you know, move the conversation forward with that, that response or ask people to clarify something that maybe you don't quite agree with. And as always, I mean, stay civil. We haven't had really any issues with that, but I just wanted to point that part out. Also, the Unit 4 writing assignment is due next Monday, December 2nd by 11.59 p.m., so you get an extra day due to Thanksgiving weekend. Um, remember that you only need to do this if you haven't done the Unit 3 writing assignment. Doing both the Unit 3 and Unit 4 writing assignments will not help your grade. Um, the Unit 4 writing assignment, a couple things to kind of help you out. So the end of Chapter 7 has like three to four pages directly discussing the question for this unit about Zimbabwe's authoritarianism. So please use these resources, combine them with the theories I'm going to talk about in this podcast, and that are also talked about in the textbook. Um, and outside of that, make sure you're keeping up on the readings and the videos. Um, these are going to be very important for the final paper. Um, so you'll be able to incorporate them. Um, and then make sure to take a look at that final paper. Start taking a peek ahead so you can get an idea of what you'll be writing about. Um, and if you have questions, please send me an email. Come to office hours. Make sure you understand what's expected of you in the final paper. And also make sure that you're doing the quizzes before the end of finals week. You don't want to have to do all of that, all of that reading and working on the final paper at the same time. Because there's a lot of reading, and if you're trying to cram it in a short period of time, that's going to be really hard to do. All right, and then finally, since this is the last episode of The Populist for this class, I want to thank you all for such a great term. You know, it has really been great to read what you've written, see the conversations you've had on the discussion forums, and I've also had the privilege of meeting some of you in person, and I really hope that this class has been useful and that you have a little bit better understanding of the world around us and can look at events going on and have these different frames of reference to, to view them through. And obviously with this class, I couldn't get to everything, um, 
But, you know, if you want to stop by my office or have questions about other classes to take in the department, you know, please send me an email or stop by in office hours and talk to me. I would be happy to point you in the right direction. Okay, so without further ado, here is episode 13 of The Populist on theories of authoritarian regimes, emergence, and persistence. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of The Populist. This week, we are talking about theories of authoritarian regime, emergence, and persistence. So last week, we looked at how we can define authoritarian regimes and outline the different types of of regimes that we see in the world. Whereas this week, we're looking at the theories that explain why authoritarian regimes emerge and persist or continue to exist. Now, be aware that each of these theories is explaining both the emergence and persistence of authoritarian regimes. And you're also going to want to make sure that you pair these theories with the readings from Bellin and Dixon, as they will be helpful, especially the Dixon reading will be very helpful in answering your final paper questions. Okay, and when it comes to the final paper, also make sure that you're including things from the textbook as well as things from the readings and the podcast, and the videos for weeks eight and nine. So after this week, you should have everything that you need to answer your final paper question thoroughly. Okay, so in today's podcast, what we're going to do, I've said it before, but we're looking at what causes authoritarian regimes to emerge and persist. And what we're going to be looking at first are the historical institutional theories Theories that include poverty and inequality, uh, then theories about state weakness and failure, political culture, uh, theories of, that include barriers to collective action, and then a little bit on the special causes or the special causal circumstances surrounding hybrid and semi-authoritarian regimes. All right, so getting started with historical institutional theory. So if you remember back to Chapter 5, that historical institutional theories look for critical junctures or historical points where important things happen or institutions are formed. And then when these institutional patterns get set, they lock in the institutional patterns as things move forward. So in short, the theory with historical institutionalism when it comes to authoritarian regime emergence and persistence is that coalitions among groups or classes tend to shape the fates of regimes and institutions and give these coalitions enduring effects. So applying historical institutional theories to authoritarian regimes will look for the points in time where authoritarian institutions are formed or when the coalitions of societal actors that are supportive of authoritarian regimes are established. So it may lead to the question of why would there be support for authoritarian regimes? Well, some groups 
um, will be or they think they will be better off with an authoritarian regime. And this includes groups that are given special treatment under the current regime, such as religious groups or maybe the military. Um, this could also include economic actors who want to have privileged access or control of the state. Maybe they want to prevent wealth distribution or expanding economic rights of the broader public. And this can also include rich or, or privileged uh, classes or actors who may want to resist democratization, democratization if they feel that it could lead to a confiscation of their wealth or a reduction in their privileges. And here we're talking wealthy business owners, landlords or nobles. If, if elites have a lot to lose by democratizing, they may try to form non-democratic institutions as well as build coalitions of elite actors that are going to support these institutions. Okay, um, and remember that a historical institutional explanation will try to explain how the institutions were established and then how that institutional arrangement can explain the subsequent development after that. All right, so getting, getting a little bit more detailed, when, when using a historical institution institutional explanation for regime persistence, there's really two parts that we need to take into account. And this is that once the institutions are established, they will be difficult to change and continue through time until an event or other crisis has an, or creates an opening that then allows these institutions to be challenged or allows these institutions to be replaced by something else. Okay, so if you imagine... Um, like the if you if you can imagine the the sequence of events happening and it looks like one of the the lie detector things where it's like going along kind of normal and not much change and then there's a big change that happens and it goes crazy and it kind of opens up the space for things to be transformed or for a regime change or something like that then it, a new form comes in, and then it becomes kind of normalized again. This is the punctuated equi equilibrium model. Things are calm for a while, then they go out of whack and get reorganized, new coalitions form, new institutions form, and then it goes back to normal for a while until there's another crisis or disruption of some kind. Okay, so, but, but once these institutions are, are established... All right, the people in a society, they're going to play the game that the rules create. All right, just like in the United States, people play by the rules that the laws create. In Europe, when there's elections, okay, they have electoral rules that they're going to play by. All right, as, a, as institutions are established, people get accustomed to playing a certain political game. Or get accustomed to not playing at all in the case of some authoritarian regimes, and it just seems normal. I mean, look at the uh, reading for this week from uh, Tom Popinski that you know normal authoritarianism is boring and tolerable. It's you know it's people have jobs and people have families and things to do, and you know it's not. A every authoritarian state isn't totalitarian in their repression. Okay. Now, the second part of using historical institution explanations for regime persistence is that this coalition of actors supporting the institutional arrangement would likely need to remain present for those institutions to persist. So, 
if you've got a coalition of uh, your elite business people with the military, with certain politicians, if one of them decides that, well, you know what, this isn't quite what we want in the institutional arrangement, there's likely going to create some kind of crisis that will open up room for new institutional designs, whatever that may be. All right. And also make sure to look at the fictitious example of, it's a little more detailed, of how this might work on pages 161 and 162 in your textbook. All right. And there's also the, the little blurb in your textbook on Barrington Moore, whose you know, origins of uh, what's dictatorship and, and democracy are, I think that's what it, what it says. But, but that, that blurb there, he goes through um, a variant of Marxist theory of why some societies end up with liberal democratic regimes and others with fascist or communist socialist regimes in the 20th century. All right, and now now he's looking at regimes that moved from agrarian to industrial society. Okay, so he's looking at the period of industrialization and development. All right, and his key variable in this explanation is the presence of a strong middle class or the bourgeoisie. And in short, his whole theory can be boiled down to no bourgeoisie, no democracy. All right, the presence or absence of a strong middle class would produce different coalitions and lead to different institutions and different regime types. All right, there's three routes that he talks about. Now, this isn't in the blur, but I think it's important to go through. Um, he's got the capitalist democratic route, which was the U.S., England, and France. And here, the peasantry was politically impotent or was eradicated altogether. But you had a strong bourgeoisie that was present. All right? And the aristocracy, so the bourgeoisie is the middle class. The aristocracy is going to be your upper class. I mean, these are your nobles and the, the elites of society. The, but the aristocracy allied itself with the bourgeoisie or failed to oppose its democratizing efforts. Okay, so it either allied themselves with the middle class or the middle class was too strong and they couldn't resist their demands for democratization. All right, the next route is the capitalist reactionary route, and this is exemplified by places like Germany and Japan. And here, the peasantry posed a threat to the interests of the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy. So this led to a conservative alliance against the peasantry. And this alliance strengthened an autonomous, sometimes authoritarian state that could be co-opted by a fascist leader in a revolution from above. Okay, so it was the elites of society saying, no, 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 we're not going to take these peasants in their demands. We're going to crush them. And the state was transformed. And we saw how terrible that could be during World War II. But it was this alliance among the bourgeoisie or the middle class and the aristocracy or the upper class that led to the state being transformed in this way, which led it to being susceptible to someone like Hitler coming along and, you know, making things significantly worse. Um, the final route that Barrington Moore talks about is the communist route, and he uses China and Russia as the examples here. And in this case, the bourgeoisie, the middle class, failed to emerge. 
So the peasantry was strong, and it was also independent enough from the aristocracy to spur a radical revolution from below. All right, so China and Russia were largely agrarian societies, and these peasantries were able to rise up against the centralized agrarian bureaucracy and remake the state according to Marxist ideas. Okay, so that is a little bit more background on how the historical institutional route might work. But let's move on to poverty and inequality. And here we want to remember back to modernization theory because this theory expects the opposite to be true. And if we remember modernization theory from the uh, democratization literature, it's basically saying that as people become richer and get more money, they're going to demand more political rights. Okay, so here... The theory is that high levels of poverty or inequality are going to lead to more authoritarianism. And poverty leads the populace to greater concern with economic issues than political liberties. All right, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, if you don't know where your next meal will come from, or if you have money to pay for a doctor visit or for rent, you're going to be a lot less likely to care about and devote energy to demanding the right to vote free speech, protests, reading the newspaper, etc., etc. So in poorer societies, we would expect people to focus on basic economic and social needs as opposed to political rights. Now, these political and social rights may still be valued, but they're not of much use if you're starving. Okay, it might be great to, to want to do that, but if there's no food in your stomach, you know, it's going to be a lot less important and a lot lower down on what you really are concerned about. And there's been international survey research on political attitudes done, and what it shows, related to to this theory, what it shows is, in, in general, as people become richer, they prioritize political freedoms more, which is what we would expect from modernization theory. And in general, poorer populations, um, survival is more of the focus, all right. There, now, there's some evidence that many, but not all people, would like to be in democratic societies. But people in poorer countries will be less likely to demand democratization and or maintain democratic institutions once they're established. All right. So the, the high levels of poverty makes things less stable. All right. So even if you get democratic institutions, if you're still worried about where your next meal is going to come from or where you're going to live, then the chances that you're going to dedicate the time to maintain those institutions goes down. All right. So high income inequality is also correlated with authoritarian regimes. So not just the overall country being poor, but if there's a group that has a bunch of money and or a bunch of wealth and most of society has nothing, it's going to be correlated with authoritarian regimes. And this is why all the debates about um, income inequality and the, the Gini coefficient and stuff are, are so important and, and hammered home is because people don't want to see this happen to democratic states. All right, so, so what happens when you see this kind of disparity between 
incomes and wealth is it leads to mistrust between groups. So wealthy interests and reactionary authoritarians may defend the privilege of the people that have the money and the wealth. And your book goes into the Somoza family in Nicaragua, uh, which ruled in Nicaragua from 1936 to 1979. And here, large amounts of Nicaragua are actually owned by the family. All right? And it, it, you know, the, it blurred the lines between you know, what was the families and what was the state's. But they defended the privilege of that family. All right, and this can also create envy between classes and social division. All right, there's there is research to suggest that when people see others doing well and feel like it's it's an unfair advantage, that there's resentment and envy there. And authoritarians can sometimes present themselves as the avengers of injustice. And we see this sometimes with populist leaders, and they will claim to represent disenfranchised poor people and to correct all the inequalities in society. And a lot of times, populist leaders who kind of border on authoritarianism can do this. Um, Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Maduro, who's now there in Venezuela, that's a, a really good, good example of these, these kind of populist leaders that border on authoritarianism that are, you know, they champion themselves as representing the disenfranchised and poor, and they're going to correct all the inequalities in society, but then they end up just clamping down with, with their own rule. All right, and to look more at the, the poverty and how the economic situation affects regime type, you probably want to look at uh, Asimoglu and Robinson's blurb on page 164. It goes through, I mean, their book is, is fantastic. It's, it's very game theory and formal modeling with, uh, you know, mathematical equations to try and, and model how this whole thing works. But if you read the first chapter or two, they, they lay out their theory very nicely. Um, but the book explains it there. And I can actually post, I think I've got one of those chapters. I can put that in the notes or in the, the posting for this if you're interested in, in reading it because it's, it's a nuanced theory, but it, it basically is saying that people do things in, in their, their economic interest and, and how that affects regime type. Okay. Um, so the next theory looks at state weakness and state failure and how that may perpetuate authoritarian regimes or lead to authoritarian regimes. And the theory is that states with weak institutions are more likely to have authoritarian regimes. Okay? And some so some theories of authoritarianism are associated with overly strong states and totalitarian regimes. This you know the famous Nazi Germany, Soviet Union. But this theory is going the other way. All right, and these theories are associated with weak states and weak institutions. Okay, and they're arguing that weak institutions often result in more predatory states. So, a group or certain groups within society are able to capture the state and use it for their own benefit. And this really can blur the lines between private property and the ruler's family and state property. I mean, it's like the uh, Somoza family in Nicaragua I talked about just, just a little bit ago. 
you know, uh, or another example could be, you know, ruling elites using the military against their opponents in society. All right, so these groups take over the state and use it for their own personal gain. Now, strong states, on the other hand, tend to, strong states with strong institutions tend to be less personalistic. If you think about what makes a strong state back all the way from week one, is that they, they're not personalistic in nature. The loyalty is to the institution, not the individual in the institution. So the strong states with strong institutions are usually less personalistic, and they're more resistant to private actors being able to co-opt them for personal gain, whereas state weakness opens it up to where the state can, and its institutions can be used uh, by individuals for their own personal gain. All right, so now this creates a paradox of a sort because well-institutionalized strong states with high capacity are usually less likely to become authoritarian. But when they do, it there's a higher chance that that authoritarian state will be totalitarian because totalitarianism requires a strong state if you're really going to control society from the top down all the way into people's personal lives. Now, on the other hand, poorly institutionalized weak states have a higher chance of becoming authoritarian, but it's more likely to take different forms. It's not going to be totalitarian because they don't have the capacity to actually do that. But, you know, if, if they do become authoritarian and they're poorly institutionalized and they're weak and people are taking them over and using them for their own personal benefit, it's also very destructive to the country. Now, state weakness may also be an intervening or middle variable in explaining why authoritarian regimes emerge or persist. Okay, so it's basically saying that there's, there's different reasons why a state can be weak, but that that state weakness still leads to authoritarianism. All right, and the first is low economic development. So if low economic development leads to state weakness, which then leads to authoritarian regimes, think back to week one in the failed state index. Many of the poorest places are also weak states that are also authoritarian. Or they've got very unstable democracies because if you're, if you're poor with a weak state, it tends not to foster democratization or democratic stability. Now, the other way that state weakness can lead to authoritarianism is if there's an unstable coalition that is leading to the state weakness. Okay, so if strong states are the product of stable class coalitions, unstable class coalitions might indirectly raise the likelihood of authoritarian outcomes. All right, if class coalitions are distrustful of each other, and constantly looking to undermine each other, then capturing the state is going to have huge rewards. But this constant fight for the state means that institutions are not able to really grow roots. They're not really really able to become consolidated, which leads to weaker institutions and a weaker state. And if a weak state leads to authoritarianism, these unstable coalitions may actually be the cause or be the initial cause in that causal chain that goes unstable coalitions leading to a weak state. Weak state leads to authoritarian regimes. 
So the next theory of uh, authoritarian regime persistence and emergence is political culture. All right, and in your book, it says political culture theories of authoritarian persistence. And this theory is that some countries may have cultural traditions that are just more suited for authoritarianism. All right, so beliefs, norms, and values of a country's citizens are going to determine its regime type. And just think back to chapter five, where you know some scholars have argued the that Asian values are different and you know there's the emphasis on authority authoritarian authority and obedience over the individual and you know this is not necessarily compatible with western democracy all right and this argument we see i mean it can be made by authoritarian leaders who want to retain power like singapore's lee kuan yu um, saying that confucian values are not compatible with Western democracy, but this is the type of argument that uh, political cultural theorists would make. All right, um, and it's it's also argued that some types of national identity might be more conducive to authoritarianism than others. So in Latin America, there there are people. There was a, a famous book written in the eighties saying that Latin America has this centralist tradition that makes them more willing to accept authoritarian regimes. And this is basically saying that, look, they've got a different history, different norms than uh, Europe does. There wasn't any feudalism. There was no history of religious nonconformity. They didn't have the Industrial Revolution the way that uh, Europe did. And so, so this leads to bureaucratic centralism. So, and pre-industrial and non-egalitarian in character. So non-egalitarian is, so egalitarian would, would say that, you know, everybody is on an equal playing field. So if you've got beliefs that that's not the case, you might be more willing to accept large disparities in income and an authoritarian regime where not everybody is equal and certain people have privileged access and some don't. All right. So so that is another type of argument that falls under this political culture theories. And other others have argued that it's you can't look at this general overarching cultural attitudes. Like they they say that those aren't really what matter. And what they've done to to argue against the national identity or something like Asian values is that they've performed survey research trying to understand attitudes towards civic participation. Okay, so they've, they've tried to, to do this, and uh, Almond and Verba have a, a blurb in your book, and it'll, it explains kind of the, the gist of that research. I mean, they wrote a book and, and tried to, to use these attitudes to explain why we see the different regime types and political systems that we do. Now, these political cultural theories have a fair amount of skepticism within political science. And as I've, I've mentioned before, they're hard to measure. I mean, survey data, yeah, it, it's re- it can be reliable, but it can also be really tricky to make sure you're getting the right stuff out of it. And culture is not a constant. It's changing all the time. But even the most hardcore skeptics likely believe that cultural variables can 
given certain circumstances, increase the likelihood that certain types of authoritarian regimes are going to develop. And evidence for this is that it's really hard to explain why Nazi Germany and Soviet Union developed totalitarianism without taking into account the ideas of Marx and fascist ideas that influenced key actors in those regimes. All right, can you really explain why Nazi Germany became the way it did without fascist ideas and their effect on Adolf Hitler? It's probably really difficult to do, although it's it's not everything, all right. And that's what even the political um, the political culture theorists would say. Look, this isn't going to explain everything, but it's just that your story is incomplete without these types of explanation. Okay. And moving on to the next theory, which is it includes barriers to collective action. And collective action simply people working together towards a collective end. All right. And here the theory states that rational calculations and personal incentives can explain the persistence of repressive regimes. And this is much, much different from cultural theories. And here, people are trying to model rational processes of decision-makings that politicians and citizens engage in. So they assume that the actors, these politicians and citizens, know their interests and preferences. They know what they want. But they also assume that they don't have all the information about how others are going to act. So this is known as imperfect information. And... These individuals within these repressive regimes, they, they don't have very many incentives to risk repression from that regime. And what this does is it leads to what's known as the free rider problem, where you let others take the risk even if you get the rewards from, from whatever the outcome if it is. If it's regime change, you hear this in like unions, you let other people go and picket and fight for you and you pay your fee and get the, the benefits from that. All right, so in, in absence of effective coordination, the regime is going to remain intact. So as long as they can prevent enough people from rising up and acting in unison, they can ensure the persistence of the regime. All right, so... So people will not engage in collective action until it becomes rational for them to do so, according to this theory. And in order for it to seem rational for them to to do so, the chances of success need to seem high, their contribution is important to the desired outcome that they are looking for, and citizens are unlikely to face major costs from the regime for taking part in this collective action. Okay, so these these theories assume most people want more democratization regardless of their culture. So that's an assumption that these theorists are making. Whether or not that's true is debatable. But there are major barriers to democratic transition that would make it, quote-unquote, irrational to try and provoke a democratic transition. So there's this scenario in your book on on page 167 where one friend is trying to get another to oppose the regime, and it kind of plays through how that would work if they think their chances of success aren't very good. So 
repress you might have a repressive regime where the elites make all the decisions and they use torture and spying to stifle dissent there's heavy media censorship and they're reading emails and they're tapping phones and if if you know all of this is going on how many people are really going to risk being on the government's bad side and being subject to their coercive apparatus to use one of uh, Bellin's terms from this week from that reading So according to rational choice theories, authoritarian persistence is likely in a scenario like the one I just mentioned above, and like the one in your your textbook, all right? And it's likely until events happen that will change a lot of people's minds. And this can include things like a foreign power propping up the state's security apparatus, suddenly decides that they're going to focus on human rights, so they're no longer going to give money to that regime, and then there's not the support, and the security apparatus isn't nearly as intimidating or as dreadful. There could also be a change in leadership of the regime. Another way that this could happen is that the economy tanks, and people then have nothing to lose. They're in a desperate situation. So this can, but this can also work in the other way with uh, the economy tanking or a financial crisis leading to the toppling of democratic regimes. Okay, so there, there is some research to, to suggest when it comes to economics that a strong economy will allow regime persistence regardless of regime. And the last thing that your book kind of talks about when talking about authoritarian regime emergence and persistence or explaining them is the special causal circumstances surrounding hybrid and semi-authoritarian regimes. Now, it should not be assumed that the factors mentioned earlier to explain the rise of authoritarian regimes or authoritarian persistence are not relevant to hybrid regimes. They are. But... The competitive authoritarian regimes that have emerged in recent decades, they kind of have their own historically specific causal factors of importance. And this is laid out by Levitsky and Way, and you read the article that your book is, is mentioning for class last week. Okay, so they're arguing that they're arguing four things. Competitive authoritarian regimes should not be thought of as transitional. Okay, these are a type of regime that mixes both elements of authoritarianism and democracy. And so th- w- their arguments are that if you have more Western linkages, okay, you're linked to Western Europe, to the United States, to NATO, um, democratic likelihood is going to be greater. And if you've got strong ongoing authoritarian practices, then you're more likely to be strongly organized authoritarian. All right, and then finally, that if you're kind of a weak, weaker ongoing authoritarianism, that it could end up resulting in this continuation of a weak, unstable authoritarian regime. Okay, but read that blurb in in your textbook and revisit the article that you read for last week by Levitsky and Way, and you know that will provide more details. But it's important to to point out that 
you know, part of the debate was, well, are these just transitional and they're caught in the middle, but they're going to, to move on? Or are these enduring forms of, of regimes? Okay, so that's going to largely do it for this week. To go back through kind of what we've talked about is looking at theories of what causes authoritarian regimes to emerge and persist. And first, we looked at historical institutional theories, then theories including poverty and inequality, and then theories that look at state weakness and state failure and how that affects authoritarianism and authoritarian persistence, then theories that include political culture, and then the barriers to collective action, which this is going to be an important one for your your final paper, because this relates to both Bellin and to Dixon. Okay, and it, it ties into, you know, the ongoing kind of cat and mouse game between authoritarian regimes and, like, technological advances and how they prevent people from organizing to oppose the regime. And then, finally, we talked about special causal circumstances surrounding hybrid and semi-authoritarian regimes. So, make sure that you're keeping up on the reading and you're watching the videos. Make sure that you're working on the writing assignment for this unit um, if you need to do that assignment. Remember, you need to do either writing assignment 3 or writing assignment 4. Don't do both. It will not help your grade. Um, And make sure you're doing the discussion this week and looking ahead to the final paper as well. You know, start thinking about how you're going to answer that question and, you know, ask questions if you're not sure. Also, make sure that you're taking the quizzes. Don't wait until the last minute to do those, those final five quizzes because it's not going to be something that you can just knock out. There's a lot of reading that goes into that. So, you know, make sure you're keeping up on things. Make sure, ask questions if things are not clear. Make sure you're doing the case study readings. And until next time, have a good one.